All right, if you would please turn to Genesis chapter 12. So the goal is, over the next few weeks, is to uh, cover the life of, of Abraham, a- Abram, and Abraham, same person, and then uh, talk about Abraham from a theological standpoint, uh, and at that point we will bring in New Testament discussions of Abraham. But for right now we're going to focus mostly on uh, the Old Testament story of Abraham, because the Abraham uh, is a huge figure in the New Testament, as most of you know. So we'll come to that, but first, Old Testament, Abram. Genesis chapter 12 begins the story of Abram, who is later called Abraham. And then in the 20s, you've got Genesis 20s, you've got the birth of Isaac. And so we'll generally go to there before we jump to the New Testament and spend our time there. So in Genesis chapter 12... Uh, We've got this. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This um, is actually a very huge deal. You, you don't necessarily know at this point how big of a deal this is, but this is, this is one of the most pivotal points in history. All right? God at this point says, Abraham is... My, my people. This is my people. And through this people, and all of your descendants, all the nations will be blessed. All right? And that promise there, I mean, it does sound like a big promise. All the nations will be blessed. God does do this. All right? God, the, the rest of the, the Old Testament and then the New is God actually doing exactly what he says right here. So this is a momentous occasion, even if it might not be obvious at this point. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old, and he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Where's Haran? Anybody know? I mean, for a lot of these old places, it's kind of iffy. Um, it's up there. <laughs> It's gonna it's gonna be over here-ish, right? You know this might this river might need to be a little more south, but Haranish Haran is ish over here, and so where did he come in chapter eleven? Where did he actually come from? Babylon. Ur for, yes, Ur of the Chaldees, and so he went west, and then he comes south down into Canaan. Do I need look at the map? Do I need to move my Euphrates now? I think I do. I think it is further south. The reason why he went east first was the desert. Right. This, I mean, there's a whole lot of, as you know, inhospitable territory in here. Uh, I mean, this area is fantastic. All right. You're between two rivers, lots of fresh water. And, uh, but over here, lots of mountains and, and desert. And so you've got at the, the end of chapter 11, you've got him going uh, with his father um, from Ur to Terah. Excuse me, uh, to Terah was his father, uh, to Haran. And now you've got here him going down to Canaan. 
And so if we go look and um, look, for example, in verse 6, Abraham, excuse me, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, we've already seen the Canaanites by this point, right? Good or bad? We already know there's a problem, right? Because even though it was Ham was the one who sinned, you've got in that, in that story, it was really Canaan, right? The, the, it points at Canaan as well, which is interesting. And so we've, we've already got, we've got, bad, we've got bad omens here, bad signs. Then the Lord appeared to Abram, verse 7, and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Okay, Bethel and I. They're going to be over here. All right. I on the east, Bethel on the west. Where's the Negev on the map? Just, just east of the sea. Dead sea. Is that the Dead Sea? Or? Yes. And so you will see, uh, so Abram, is, Abram is, is doing this motion. Boom. Down here. And then he will progress through the Negev at this point. Then he will go down to Egypt. And then you will see him progressing back through the Negev, back up to here. And so that's generally the sequence for the next few chapters. As you look, for example, in verse 10, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And so he goes down here, and uh, like Isaac, he has an incident because of his beautiful wife with a foreign king. Um, He goes down here because of the famine, and then he's going to ultimately, after the famine is over, go back. Now you might recall from this, instead of recalling, let's just go ahead and read it. And so uh, there in that episode where Abram is in Egypt, they, the, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was beautiful, and then Pharaoh gives Abram a lot of stuff, right? And so this really is a point at which, I mean, you've already seen, as we've read, that Abram had a lot of slaves, a lot of stuff, really when he's coming from Haran in the north. But down when you see verse, uh, verse 16, And for her sake he dealt with, well with Abraham, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And so Abraham is gathering wealth. But at this point he ultimately leaves because, uh, well, Sarai or Sarai is the wife of Abram, not the wife of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is cursed, and so they send him back. So that's chapter 12. Now you'll see this in chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with them into the Negev once again, or the Negev, this area down here to the south. Verse 2, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I. So he's basically retracing his steps. Uh, does anybody know what Bethel means? Mm, that's uh, Be- Be- Bethlehem is house of bread. Anybody? House of God. House of God. El, um, you know the word Elohim? 
the plural, it's a plural of God. Uh, El is just is is one of the you know, Hebrew words for for that uh, for for God. Beth El. All right. When you see Beth in front of a word, think house. Can you think of any other Beths other than Bethlehem? Bethsaida, Bathsheba. Um, you know, I wonder in the in the person names. I wonder how often those are, are house. You know, you, I'm not going to call a woman a house, but it might take that poorly. But, Bethlehem, yeah, Lechem is bread, so Bethlehem is the house of bread. There's just a ton of them. You'll see Beth Peor, Beth Baal Ma'an, Beth Jeshemoth, Bethlehem. Anytime you see Beth in front of a city name, it means house. And so here, Bethel, which means house of God. And so he had gone south, and now he's back up here, and he is right here-ish. Okay? Right here-ish. Now in chapter 13, something important happens, and this sets up events for several chapters, uh, which, and all of these are really going to need a lot of this, this map. Okay. So he's very rich, right? And so we're in verse 3. Uh, we're in verse 4. We read that. Verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So once again, we have another repetition of the Canaanites. So... What's the resolution? We can't, we're having problems living so close together, uncle. We need to do something. All right? And so, anybody remember the resolution to this? Uh-huh. Abram says, okay, we, it's a, this is a problem. You pick first. Whatever you take, I will go the other way. And which way does Lot take? He, he takes the east. And uh, typically people will put Sodom and Gomorrah over here. All right? And he took and could see as far as the... What is the city it says? Is it Zoar? I believe is the, the name of the city. Yeah. In the direction of Zoar. Zoar is down here. And so Lot goes this general direction, right? Lot. And then Abram is over here. Now, in terms of promises, God is going to, t- to promise Abram this general land area. All right? What is, what is, what is the general vicinity that, that God is promising Abraham, or Abram at this point? Do you know? He's gonna get, he is going to say Canaan, but he's also going to include, God does not promise this land to Lot. God promises this land to Abraham, all right, or Abram at this point. And so even though right now Lot is getting this land, this land is going to be subsumed in what will in the future be national Israel. And so that's, that's Abraham, or excuse me, Abram. Keep jumping ahead of myself. It's Abram and Lot. They split at this point. If you look to verse 14 in Genesis chapter 13, 
the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Which, the answer is, can anyone count the dust of the earth? No. Right? That's the point. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So the scene is, Abraham and Lot are presumably in a high area, and they can see all around. Lot separates. Abram hasn't moved yet. All right? Lot is now gone. Abram says, well, Abram's still in that position. All right. Now look all around you. I'm giving all of this land to you. All right. So even the stuff that Lot had just looked south and east for, he's saying, Abraham, just look all around. You're going to get all of this land. Not at this time. Abraham's family is still smallish. And there are Canaanites and Perizzites in the land. But that's ultimately what they're going to get. Okay. Any questions about any of that so far? Okay. Chapter 14 is why we need the larger map, really. All right. I've got subtitled here, Abram Rescues Lot in my ESV. We've got a war. And we also have in this chapter the introduction of Melchizedek, which ends up being a very important theological point later. At this point, though, there's not a whole lot said. In the Old Testament, Melchizedek does not have a hugely important place theologically. Uh, you'll see him again on the Psalms, but really it's the New Testament that really sees him as important and understands it that way. So, chapter 14 here, Abram rescues Lot. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, where's Shinar? Anybody? Babylonia. Yep. Shinar is over here in Babylonia. Okay. Now, Babylon, good, bad? Generally, generally bad. Okay, so we've got uh, King of Shinar, Arioch, King of Elisar. Uh, I don't think they're quite sure exactly where that is. Uh, Chodor Laomer, I do like that name a lot. Uh, King of Elam. Elam is over here. And next, we're going to have uh, the Goyim. Title, King of Goyim. Goyim are up here. All right, so we have a geographical grouping of kings here. And that probably means Elisar is probably right in here too, right? Because they're all ultimately together here. These made war with Bera, king of Sodom. So that's down here. All right. They made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, which is going to be in the same general area, same with Shemeber, or Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. We know where Zoar is. Zoar is down here south of the Dead Sea. And so this is a, this is a wide area, right? So this is not a bunch of people very, very close. And all of these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served 
Shador Laomer. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Shedor Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Enim in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to in Mishpat. This is Kadesh. And defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Emraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So this does not go well for the armies of the south, as you can see. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Okay, so we've got a setup. They've got a, these, these form a conglomeration, all right? And then there start to be rebellions down here, all right? And the south joins in the rebellion. These, these guys come down here and basically win. All right, they come all the way down to the Dead Sea, and they defeat this league of southern folk. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshel and of Honor. Uh, those names will come up here again. These were allies of Abram. All right, so Abram's not alone at this point. He's got a few with him, Eshel and Anner. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, which is towards the north. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And so we're going, we're, we're going up here-ish. Okay. So there's fighting, and then he pursues, and he's going further north. Maybe not quite that far north, but that's the general thing, right? And the scene is this, right? The northern alliance comes down, beats the southern, and they start going back. And so Abram hears that Lot is captured, and so he grabs him and his allies, as we'll see. They bring men too, and they chase them, and they defeat them, and then rout them and continue to chase them as far as Damascus. And so Abram's chasing them further up north as they run back trying to get to their cities. So that's the scene. Uh, let's see. Verse 16. What's that? Verse 13 says, I believe so, yeah. which, is, which is interesting. Right? Abram, the first Hebrew. Big covenant is yet to come, but Right, right. You've got at this point, you've got you know future people writing mm-hmm. about this, and if you're talking to future people, you're like, how far? How are we going to tell them how far north they went? Oh, everybody knows where Dan is in the future. And so, yeah. And so, yeah, this is a, you know, backwards looking kind of approach 
to, to things, right? But that's a, it's a really good point. And you see that a lot in here. It's, it's the same thing whenever we went through the genealogy of, of Ham, right? A lot of this is, um, this is later people looking back and going, you know, a lot of our enemies came from Ham and Canaan. And, um, and you've got, you know, also in the, 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 the uh, what was the name of the, the, the mighty hunter? Totally blanking his name, right? Nimrod, right? You've got that coming from Babylon. He, you know, he, he founds Babylon. He founds Nineveh. All of that is later people coming back and going, these people founded all sorts of issues, including this group up here that are going to cause issues for the people of God later. So yeah, it's good, good to point that out. So they pursued, the, pursued them as far as Damascus in verse 16. And then he brought back all the possessions and brought back his kinsman, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. All right. So that is essentially the, the war. Now, don't think, I don't, I don't think we're supposed to look at this and think of when we think of war of just, you know, 40,000 people, right, on, on the battlefield doing things. All right. That's, that's not the scene you get here. How many people did Abram have? Right, and so these, this is these, you know, what, what we would call them like, you know, skirmishes or something like that, right? These, but these, for them, this is this is a large, this is a large battle force, but but don't think massive armies. And when you read the narrative, um, though, you know, and providentially we we say God was on their side, all right? But this is not, this is not a miracle passage. Like, there's nothing in here that talks about this as if, you know, Abram, with only 300 people, miraculously defeated these kings. Uh, that's, that's not, this is, just, this is just war. And so, however big these armies are, they're, they're not huge. So don't think our massive armies. Uh, of course, Abram had his guys, and it, you, you might add maybe a few more hundred on there for his companions, Eshel and Anner and those who brought with them. But still, this is not, these are not massive forces. Um, nothing like you're going to see even later on in, in the Old Testament. So still, still pretty small, but it is a war, and it is uh, wide-ranging, all the way from the north coming down to the south. The note in verse 14, that's probably adds to your point, right? He, he takes forth his train Train for what? Seems like for fighting. Mm-hmm. Right. These people are trained for fighting. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. A couple of his, somewhat historical note is that the northern kings made war with those in the south around the Dead Sea, probably over the salt trade. Salt was very easily uh, mined and it was worth its weight in gold back then. It was mm-hmm. needed to cure fish and preserve meat. It could be the salt trade. It could also be right. This is a this is a major general trade lane between Egypt and the north. Because um, if you're going to trade, you're not going to send it across here most of the time. You're going to go through here. So it could be the salt trade. It could be just the general trade that all that's going to happen between Mesopotamia and and uh, Egypt. Also, so, yeah. something interesting that happened in Egypt with uh, Abram's wife uh, posing as his sister. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that was, there was a strict prohibition, uh, some prohibition against adultery, but I think maybe it was a violation of etiquette. 
So say that again. Uh, a breach of hospitality etiquette mm -hmm. that Pharaoh had had an affair with someone, another man's wife. But it certainly would would be a breach of uh, of etiquette. It's yeah. Abram, of course, you know the story. Abram is afraid that he's going to die, right? You know, I don't know. It doesn't really say. Um, now, Abraham did not strictly lie here, right? Sarai is actually a relative of his, and so he's. It's it's an interesting story because they are indeed related. Um, he definitely misled him. It, it, he definitely yeah. misled him. It's 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 a it's a white lie, you might say. Um, not all in the up, not all is in the up and up, but God uses it, right? In this case, and blesses Abraham through it. Uh, this will this will not be the last time that uh, the the Hebrews spoil the Egyptians and and take their things, and so. Uh, Perhaps we're meant to see this as a foretaste of what is to come. And so, so they come back down here, right? They have now rescued Lot, and Lot can Lot will go back in the story back to where he was based before, because we still have the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah episode to come. And so, but they're going to come back down here. The next part is. Uh, is the king of Salem. Now, most people put uh, say that Salem is probably just another name for Jerusalem, all right? And so this is probably, all right, this is probably re related to Jerusalem, which is going to be in this area where Abram is currently based. So after his return in verse 17 of chapter 14, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley, uh, might be near Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand." And Abram gave a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, give me the persons. What are we talking about? People. What people? Did you say something? No? Right. From the battle, probably, right? They, they just defeated Chedorlaomer and his forces, probably took captives. And so here uh, you've got um, the king of Sodom says, Give me the captives, but you take the booty, essentially. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with, um, who went with me. Let Aner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. So Abram refuses to take anything. His companions, Aner and Eshel and Mamre, they do actually take and share and all of that. Okay. Now, question. Um, I think this is another, you've got another instance here where it gives you a little bit of a look into how the Hebrews thought. Why does it have to say here, blessed be Abraham by God most high? Or when it says that 
uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem. He was a priest of God Most High. All right. Why God Most High? Why not just God? Yeah, you've you've got right. The, the word God is in the ancient world. All right, you know, the word God has lots of different ranges of meanings. All right, and in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, uh, that word Elohim, which is often translated as upper G God, can often be translated as other things. And so, if you want to talk about a God, you can speak of a God. But if you want to talk about and make clear which one you're talking about, as it is not just a God, but the God Most High, you can tack that on and say, well, which, which priest of which God? Well, he's the priest of the, the, the God Most High, the one who actually made heavens and earth, not some of the other little G God, or what we would call little G Gods, all right? Uh, not that they had that... that capitalization thing going on that we do, but it's, it's these spiritual beings, all right, that are there, that God created, that some of which at this point have probably fallen, all right, we've already had that discussion. And so, but this is the king of, the king of Salem, the king of probably Jerusalem, uh, is a priest of God Most High, and Abram is a servant of God Most High. And so these two, on a, at least on a spiritual level, right, are are in the same camp. And so Melchizedek blesses Abram and says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And so we talked about you know this earlier. There's, there's no idea here that this was a miraculous kind of war, right? like, like Gideon or something like that. But it is certainly very clear here from the king of king of Salem. Who, who gave you this battle? God gave you this battle. God Most High helped you win this battle. He's, he's the reason why. Okay? So that's, that's chapter 14. So you've got wide-ranging wide world, worldwide events at this point. You know, lots of travel, lots of moving around. They come south, get chased back north. Abram comes back down, and all these things happen in Abram's land near, near Jerusalem, there in chapter 14. What questions do you have about that? Are you going to say something, Bill? Um, I, I wonder if um, Melchizedek's blessing there is not only for Abram to hear. Like, it doesn't seem like they're alone together. The, yeah, they're certainly not, right? The king of Sodom is there. Mm -hmm. Other people are there. On air, Eshol, Yeah. That's a good point. That is a really good point. Yeah. Also, I've seen this used as a proof text for tithing, and I disagree completely. Even though I have finally tithed, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Yeah. Right. And the law doesn't follow like that, right? The law has a much more complex and if I'm call correctly, a larger right amount that's ultimately given. Um, but yeah. Probably not theologically a, a sound interpretation, yeah. Any other thoughts? 
Okay, we've got a little bit more time. So let's look at chapter 15. This is where we will end today. This is a very important chapter. All right, This is more covenant-making time with Abram. We've, we've got promises made to Abram in chapter 12, right? Uh, here, we're going to have more promises. And this is definitely going to affect our story here in the next few chapters. So let's actually go through and read it. So, Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. You know, think of I'm your shield. We just got out of a discussion of a war, all right? God's talking to Abram. I'm your shield. I'm the one. I'm why you win this thing. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. All right, so not his child. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Is he able to number the stars? No, it's the same point as the dust of the earth. Um, you're going to have a lot of offspring, all right, even though you are currently childless. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And this um, is something we will definitely come back to, right? Because this, this theological note right here is central to Pauline doctrine, all right? absolutely central to Paul's understanding and how he explains salvation in the New Testament. All right? The whole notion of Abram believed God, had faith in God, and therefore he was considered righteous 400 years before the giving of the law. All right? Before Moses came along. 400 years right here. So this is a hugely important theological point later on. So we will come back to it. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is a, this is a very interesting scene and a very interesting vision. Um, definitely worth going through and, and discussing what it means. Why is he cutting all of these animals in half? And what is this going to sig- signify? Continuing on, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So some important points. One, the time in Egypt at this point is foretold. And they will spend there about 400 years. All right. 
part of this delay is because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Those that are in the land, uh, God is giving them more time, but there will come a time where their iniquity, iniquity will be complete, and so therefore they must be destroyed as a judgment. But that is not yet. That must, that must wait for a while. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. All right, so now we're in the vision sequence. All right, which pieces? Animal pieces, right? On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, with Abram, saying to your offspring, I, one of these days he's going to be renamed Abraham, and I will not have this problem of getting his name wrong. All right? To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the, to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So he is once again reiterating his promise, which he just made if you, just a little bit before. I'm going to give you this land, and it's going to go all the way up to the Euphrates and all the way down to the river of Egypt. All right. Probably not the Nile. That's not the idea. It's, it's, it's uh, going to be in Hirish. All right. Okay, so what is going on with this vision? All right. Why is there a pot? Why is there a torch? And why are these things floating between the animal carcasses? And what does it mean? All right. Uh, there's another instance of this where um, we can see ultimately what the meaning of this is. And this is Jeremiah 34. So if you would please go there. Jeremiah 34. We won't read through the whole chapter. Uh, remember the general context of Jeremiah is the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon and the judgment that is going to come after that. Jeremiah 34, verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by, proclaim, by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. You have, not get, you have not made people free. I will now free upon you the sword and pestilence and famine. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of the enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And King Zedekiah, king of, uh, excuse me, Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which is withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and will bring them back to this city, and will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Okay? So, upcoming judgment on the city. You can see here, though, that part related to 
what was in Abram, uh, what was in Genesis related to Abram. All right. You actually see that the dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air. You, you remember this from Ab- from Genesis 15. Abram has to fight off the, the the carrion birds at that point. That's not the most important part. It's really verse 19, like the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. The idea here is essentially this. Um, this is a ritual of, I'm going to cut these animals in half, and as a part of my promise, all right, I'm going to walk through them to show that I mean very, this very seriously. And if I do not fulfill my side of the bargain... I, like these animals, can be cut in half and killed. That's the idea. All right? And so it's a very serious thing. If I don't do this, kill me. All right? Now, what does that mean in terms of God's promise to Abram? All right? He really, really means it. Now, notice, Abram is not the one walking between the animals. All right. This is a this is a one-way covenant, a one-way promise. This is not a I give you this, you give me that. This is a God says, I'm going to do it. And how serious am I? I mean, this is God who can't die. But this is God saying, I'm so serious, let me be cut in half and die. I will do this promise. I will fill this promise that I said to you, that I will give you all this land and that I will give you your own descendants. It won't just be through Eliezer. You will have children of your own. All right. So that's the nature of that, that particular vision and that particular act. May I be cut in half. May I be sawn in two if I do not do what I said that I'm going to do. And so that's what God promises to Abram. And does he, because we know the rest of the story, does he fulfill it? He absolutely does. How it gets fulfilled is a very interesting story and takes, of course, the entire New Testament uh, and the Old Testament. And so, theologically, we'll get there. Right? But right now, we're focusing on the, you know, the Abraham or the Abram part of the story. Does that, does that not look forward to the division of Israel and the ultimate destruction of Israel and Judah? It does, right? It certainly does. And you've got that in, of course, Jeremiah, right? You've got that breakup. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and you've got then theological interpretation of all of these things in the New Testament going, okay, because the New Testament is a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, okay? Or Abram, right? It is a fulfillment of that. And lots of interpretation pointing back to Abram in these events. Uh, any other thoughts, questions, notes? I thought it was kind of interesting yeah. about the uh, animal selected to sacrifice and her goat, a ram, a dove, and a young pigeon. They were the only acceptable animal to be sacrificed in the temple later on. Not but donkeys, not camels. Continued focus on the... So, so similar to the Noah incident, right? Yeah. Continuing focus on appropriate animal sacrifice. Right? Also, the, the thing in Jeremiah, they're guilty for breaking the covenant, but it's not the same one that God... That's right. Right. It's a different covenant. Right. Which covenant is this that they're guilty of? The breaking. Covenant. What's that? The law of Moses. Right. The promise that they were going to be true. That's right. 
Yeah, remember the sequence of the covenants. It's God promises to Abraham, and this covenant, covenant, very important point, theologically, in the New Testament. The covenant to Abram predates the covenant given to Moses. You can think of the Abrahamic Abram covenant as this big, and Moses is just like, think of it as an implementation. How might we implement this covenant? I'm going to give different requirements, all right? Because the Mosaic covenant was very much a, you do this, and I will do this. Positive. Or, but if you do this, I will do this. Negative, right? The Mosaic covenant was very much that way. The covenant to Abram is nothing like that. It is God saying to Abram, I will do this. Period. I will make this happen. And so the Mosaic covenant is ultimately, as we find out later, the Mosaic covenant is ultimately temporary. All right? It was meant for a time. It is a part of, it comes later than the Abrahamic covenant, and will end where the Abrahamic covenant itself will never end. The Abram, this covenant to Abram is actually still, theologically speaking, is still in effect and is the reason why the church exists. All right? That is the covenant of Abram um, working itself out in history. But more on that later. All right, let's be let's be dismissed. Uh, Chip, will you pray for us, please?